Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we'll answer on each podcast as we get our heart and mind on Jesus. All scriptures quoted are from the New International Version. You can follow me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing. Okie dokie. Well, good evening, everybody. It's great to have you all here. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for tuning in to our Bible class. I'm guessing we might have from anywhere from one to three more classes on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We're approaching the end of this topical Bible study. This one in particular does lend itself to some controversy, but I hope that you've been understanding as we go through the classes, and particularly tonight's class, that in order to take the controversy out of some Bible topics, all we have to do is apply some critical and logical thinking, some textual interpretation, correct textual interpretation, and some plain old English syntax, and sometimes Greek syntax as well. And when we understand these things, we can try and get to the principle of what is being taught so that we don't get caught up in any kind of legalistic presumptions that some may read into some verses. So I hope that what we're going to go over today may help you just get to the principle of what Jesus is teaching here concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We've already gone through a lot of the class. I thank you all for your feedback uh, that you give me. Sometimes you don't ask your questions uh, in class. Sometimes you don't even text them to me, but you do call me, and we have some good conversations. So I really, really appreciate that. So last time, we're going to pick it up from where we left it off uh, last week. Or was it two weeks ago? I can't even remember anymore. But... Mm -hmm. The question came up, living in adultery, or some people bring up that question, what does that mean? And when we look at Matthew 19.9, which is our main passage here, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. Notice that it says commits adultery, boom, it, it's a one-time thing. It doesn't say no English versions or Spanish ones for that matter, imply that the adultery is continuously being committed. And that's due to the tense of this verb in the Greek. It's the present aorist tense. And this indicates something called punctiliar action. All that means is what, at a point in time, something happens. It's like our quick action of the present tense. It does not refer to an ongoing action that began in the past and then continues in the present, as if the time is ambiguous. And one of the ways we can understand this a little better is if we look at Acts 9.34, and this is where we stopped last time. In this passage, uh, Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you, get up, 
and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. So in this verse, heals is in the Greek present aorist tense. Notice that Peter declares that Aeneas experienced healing right there. It was a quick action. Uh, and then immediately, Aeneas got up, indicating that the action occurred immediately, right? Uh, so Aeneas experienced healing right then and there. Uh, it was a very short duration. It doesn't refer to an ongoing thing that occurred for some time. So it would be incorrect from this passage to assume that Peter said, Aeneas, uh, Jesus is healing you, kind of like a continuous action. He's continuously healing you, implying that maybe the healing wasn't complete, but that it required some time for it to happen. He doesn't say Jesus continues to heal you as if in the future that action is continuing. It's a punctiliar action. Jesus heals you. Boom. It happened. It's done. We move on. So when we look at Matthew 5.32, one of the incidental verses in our theme, uh, repetition somewhat of Matthew 19.9, it says, But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. In the NAS, that would just simply read commits adultery, just like in Matthew 19.9. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the Greek tenses here, uh, translated as commits adultery, is that Greek word I put here in the PowerPoint. They are both aorist tenses. Again, both punctiliar actions, actions that occur, and then that's it. They occurred. Just like if I tell, if I lie, I say a lie to you, I'm, I lied. Right there, I lied. It's not that with that one lie that I say, I continue lying into some unprecedented time in the future. That wouldn't make any sense in the English either. So the adultery occurs at some specified time. It is a point in time. The action is punctiliar. And the other variants of these verses, Luke 16, 18, Mark 10, 11, and 12, the tense is the same. They are all the same tenses. There is no passage in here that we could say or that we could justify that the adultery is being committed or continues to be committed. So since Matthew 19, 9 seems to single out men committing the adultery, in these other verses, you can see that the woman is kind of weaved into the verse as well, probably just to let the women know, hey, if you do this, you also are committing adultery. Now, uh, some may say the man who marries the divorced woman, Luke 16, 8, also commits adultery. Or in, Ma in Mark 10, 12, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So some may think or may ask, well, how can the action of the husband or the wife, if she initiates, can make their spouse a sinner? And so 
I believe Jesus was commenting because we need to interpret these things in light of what was known in the law at that time. We can't just grab a thought out of thin air or try to presume. We have to go back to what they understood at the time concerning the laws of marriage, the laws of giving a certificate of divorce, because that's what Jesus is referring to. So if we go to Deuteronomy 24, verse 4, which is probably where all of these questions hinge upon, and we've looked at this verse quite a bit, because in the verse, uh, we see a person getting married, and then they get divorced, and then they get married to another person, and that's kind of like where we go to to understand this giving of the certificate of divorce. But in verse 4, something is pointed out. It says, uh, if her, her first husband who divorced her, he is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled, because that would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. So if this woman who was divorced once and then twice, and if she's going to get married a third time back to that first husband, the law was clear in saying that that was adulterated. She has been defiled. That's what adulteration means, if you remember from our discussion in the first few classes. She's been defiled. Adultery has been committed, so she can't go back to her first husband because that would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. So her marriage with her first husband seems to be the one that is adulterated here. The law doesn't indicate that the marriage to the second or the third one was a problem. Only her going back to that first husband. So she kind of has been made the victim of adulteration by the actions of her first husband rather than bearing the guilt of it. So that's probably what Jesus was referring to. He was reciting the law that all the Jews knew. Now, once again, the present tense indicated in the verses that we studied refers to an action of short duration. Jesus is not talking that these people are going to live to being ongoing adulterers uh, unless they don't repent. If they continue doing this thing, continue to have that mindset, divorcing their wives to marry another, and they keep on going on to multi multiple marriages, then yes, they are continuing to commit uh, adultery. They are. They would be adulterers in that case. But what if somebody repents? What if somebody in their second or their third marriage says, you know what? Yes, I need to repent of this attitude. I, I've come to know Christ, and this is not something that I want to do. And of course, we know from this verse to the Corinthians that Paul indicated that some of them were adulterers, and not just adulterers, but a whole bunch of other things, right? He said, uh, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God, and that's what some of you were. So they were doing that. There were some here that had that mentality of adultery, but they had it. They were. In Christ, what happened? They were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it's important for us to understand, again, that every English translation of the Bible renders the words of Jesus 
in these passages where he mentions about committing adultery, they render the passage commits adultery or shall commit adultery. It is never translated, keeps on committing adultery. And the adultery is committed when, we may ask that question. When is the adultery committed? Well, it seems that the adultery is committed when a man divorces his wife to marry another woman, or when the man marries the original spouse after they've been married to other people. That's when we see that the law declares them as defiled. Or, of course, if somebody just fornicates with somebody else while being married. Those are the three ways that we could commit adultery according to the law and according to Jesus' words. It's important to understand here in Matthew 19, 9, this word that I bolded there, and. The word and in the English language and in the Greek is a conjunction or carries the idea of a conjunction. If you say, please go to the store and pick up some milk and juice, the person who hears that message will get the idea that, okay, I got to go to the store to do these two things together, not one or the other, but both of them, right? That is what a conjunction means. So if we understand this conjunction, let's get rid of the clause for a minute, that clause of except for sexual immorality. Just, just read it as saying, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. So when is the adultery committed there? Is the adultery the new marriage? Is that the adultery? That he got married again? Or is the adultery when they commit divorce? Now, let me help you understand and remind you that according to the law of Moses, a new marriage was not adultery. Neither was getting divorced. And in this passage in Matthew 19, 9, is in keeping with the law. Jesus is not calling adultery the new marriage. He is also not calling adultery the divorce. What is the adultery here? When we read it correctly in the English, the adultery is speaking to the motive of the divorce. In this case, divorcing to marry another. That's what that conjunction means. And that speaks to the 10th commandment. Let's read that 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So this was the 10th commandment that the Jews knew. I shouldn't be coveting my neighbor's wife. If I do, I'm lusting after her. What does coveting mean? Coveting means lusting, desiring, right? And Jesus said something about that too, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. He said, you heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, which by the way is the seventh commandment. But I tell you that anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the seventh commandment was in Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. So what Jesus is doing, so he's kind of helping them understand 
that it's not just the act of adultery, but it's how you got there. <laughs> and how does one get there? With the eyes, with the mind. You lust, you covet. So he combines the seventh and the tenth commandment to help them understand that they were trying to take advantage of their wives with this divorce loophole in the law of Moses to break their vows to their wives. That's what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 19, 9. And that's why he says, if you divorce your wife to marry another, you have committed adultery. Because what were they doing? They were coveting another person while they were being married. And they were saying, you know what? I like so-and-so's wife better than mine. So let me get divorced so I can get that wife. And in doing so, they were wreaking havoc on their own marriage and in the other marriage, causing many adulteries to happen along the way and leaving their current spouse open to adultery as Deuteronomy 24 verse 4 says. So if we understand the gist of this, see, it's very simple. Once you break it down into Greek syntax and even English syntax and understand the background, we have to understand what those Jews knew. They were familiar with the law of Moses and what the law said about divorce. And so they asked Jesus these questions. And Jesus says, well, if you divorce your wife to marry another, you're committing adultery because you're coveting somebody. You know, you're coveting your neighbor's wife and you're lusting in your eyes or in your heart. So yes, you're going to commit adultery if you do this for that reason. Now, some may try to attribute guilt or innocence to parties that are being divorced, but the truth of the matter is that those who divorce are not identified by Jesus as guilty or innocent. And whether guilty or innocent, when a, diverse, when a divorce occurs, there are really no winners in that case, because divorce is something that is not godly. It doesn't come out of doing godly things. It comes out of doing human things. So there are no winners uh, in a divorce. There are no guilty or innocent parties. They're, they both lost something. And in doing so, there is some repentance that needs to happen. But whether guilty or innocent, the, when the divorce happens, the people are loosed from that marriage. And the people that are loosed from their marriage will do what they do, as we saw from the law in Deuteronomy 24. They might move on to another marriage and then to another marriage. And those who have that mentality and don't repent of it, well, yes, those are the adulterers that the Bible speak of. And if they want to be in the kingdom of God, they need to repent of that attitude. Those who've undergone a divorce, whether guilty or innocent, they need our love. They need our forgiveness. God uh, wants to extend forgiveness to them if they repent. And just likewise, they need our love and they need our forgiveness in order for them to continue on the narrow path. Only those Christians who choose to remarry after the one flesh covenant has ended by the death of their spouse, they're free to remarry in the Lord without any kind of guilty conscience of what they have done, as we see here in 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9, and also in verse 39, where Paul will say, not to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. 
for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Marriage is always is seen always as something good to marry. It's never condemned. Marriage is never called adultery in the Bible. Marriage by itself. It also says in verse 39, a woman who is bound to her husband as long as she lives. A woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. We also see from 1 Corinthians 7, 15, that if there is a Christian spouse that has been deserted by their either their unbelieving spouse or by a spouse that has gone off and married somebody else, coveted somebody else, and then married somebody else and left them holding on to nothing, you know, a covenant cannot be kept unilaterally, remember, then they are in what's called a desertion situation, as Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 15. And in such a circumstance, they are not bound. They are loosed. The covenant is loosed. It's been dissolved. So they are free to remarry. Now, some may think that there needs to be a, a celibacy requirement or a separation requirement for the guilty party. Again, you know, the Bible doesn't identify that somebody is guilty and somebody is innocent when this has happened because each case is different. There is no generalized cookie cutter approach that Jesus gave us. Matthew 19, 9 is not a cookie cutter approach to judge what has happened when somebody commits a divorce. That's the mistake some people make trying to take what Jesus said in Matthew 19, which he said to Jews in a particular situation, and try to apply that across the board, that is a big mistake. That's how legalism arises. Uh, and we make a lot of presumptions when we do so. So we have to take each case separately to determine where was the guilt and where was somebody really innocent. In other words, kind of left holding the bag like, Hey, I didn't do anything. My spouse just ran off with so-and-so, or, you know, they left me here. Uh, then that has to be determined in each individual case. Uh, so the adultery was committed. If adultery happened, it, it, it was committed. The marriage has been dissolved if they've been abandoned, uh, or the adultery was committed because your spouse went on to marry someone else and divorced you in the process. So you're left, again, in an abandonment situation. You can't keep a covenant unilaterally. So what do you do? Do you have to remain celibate for the rest of your life? Uh, or, or should I remain separate? I can't marry again. That's what some people say. Some people say, oh, well, if you were the guilty one, if you committed the adultery, if you went on and married someone else and you committed adultery and you want to repent, well, guess what? You cannot marry anybody ever again if you want to remain a Christian, or you, you uh, have to stay celibate for the rest of your life. I don't know where they get that from. I don't see that anywhere in the scripture. As a matter of fact, uh, celibacy is a doctrine of demons. If you read 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, which we did in a previous class, uh, somebody tries to tell you that you need to remain celibate. 
That the Bible identifies as a doctrine of demons. That's the only place in the Bible that talks about uh, a prohibition of marriage, and it puts it in the context of a demon doctrine. So the Bible doesn't say that, so we cannot say that if we're going to speak by the words of God. The best that they can do if they are guilty of adultery is repent, ask God for repentance, ask God for forgiveness, resolve to never do that again. And uh, I, would, I would even tell you to follow this admonishment that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20, and then in verse 27 and 28, uh, it says he, he's talking about Christians who come into the body of Christ, new Christians. He says each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. He says, he repeats this phrase about three times in that chapter. And I, I don't, I'm not going to get into all that it means right now, since we're just kind of focusing just on the remarriage part. But Paul tells you, look, you know, don't be in a hurry to do something. If you're a new Christian and you suddenly went through a divorce or a remarriage and you got baptized, he says, don't change anything. Remain in the same situation as in your work. Then he says in verse 27, are you pledged to someone? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? You know, have you been freed from your pledge? And actually in some versions it implies, have you been freed from a marriage? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So notice how every time it talks about getting married, it doesn't talk about marriage in a sinful light. It never does not even remarriage, okay? I want you to understand that from these verses that we've looked at. Uh, it says, remain in the situation which you were called when you were baptized. Were you engaged? Are you married? Then continue on with that. Don't just change the situation just because you were baptized. That's what he's telling them. Uh, were you divorced? Were you widowed? Don't seek a marriage. But if you do marry, remember, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You have not sinned. We just have to be wise in the approach of what we do. And again, to impose celibacy would be to support the doctrines of demons. That's something that we also have to remember. So what should us as a church encourage or discourage when it comes to these things? What should the church leaders encourage people in regards to divorce and remarriage? What should we discourage? Well, I'm going to go over some of the responsibilities I think we have as a church when it comes to this. And I think, I think we're going to end uh, this section here today. We, it's 8 o'clock, but I may go over a, a few more minutes just to go over this list. So... We definitely should never encourage anyone to divorce. That is a very personal thing. And plus, God hates it. <laughs> if anything, we should encourage people not to divorce. Never encourage anybody to get divorced. Encourage them to see how they can work on their marriage or salvage it somehow. That's what honors God. That's what honors marriage. Jesus plainly stated uh, what God said from the beginning, that he hates divorce and that he, what he joins, he doesn't want man to put asunder. Uh, we want to honor marriage. We want to encourage 
responsible marriage for everybody. Uh, but we also understand, just like God had to give Israel a certificate of divorce, because Israel abandoned her covenant, if that situation does happen and somebody's left holding the bag, can't hold on to a covenant unilaterally, then there's really no other answer is there for that person. But we need to encourage uh, the person in a troubled marriage to focus on their pledge to God as, as a Christian and on their pledge to each other as a marriage. And we can offer many different ways to encourage them. Uh, there are many seminars that are given by the church. There's counseling. I myself have been a marriage counselor for over 25 years. There's mentorship. You can seek for help uh, through your mentors uh, and other people who are married and ask them questions. If you get to a crossroads and you don't know what to do, that's what we're here for, to encourage, to build each other up. One thing we should never do is ignore a troubled marriage because that can fester like a boil on a skin, like an infection on a skin and take over and cause much damage in the church. We're here for each other. So if any of you are have trouble in your marriage, don't ignore it. If you're at a loss as to men, I don't know how to make our marriage better. I'm just thinking of getting divorced. Don't think that way. That's what the devil wants for you. Reach out. That's what we're here. We're here for each other in the church to help one another honor marriage. Remember what Hebrews 13 verse 4 says. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Marriage is the only thing that Christians can honor. The world cannot honor it. We know that because the world does not understand these principles. So that's left to us as the church. We all need to respect and to honor marriage. How do we do that? Don't have sex before marriage. That's the first thing. <laughs> Reserve that special uh, thing for you and your spouse. And the porn that's going on in the world, it's affecting your mind. It's teaching you to see other people as objects that you need to possess. That's from the devil. Stop doing it. Get rid of it. That's how you honor marriage. Don't see other people people as objects that you need to possess or pleasure that you need to get out of them somehow. That is going to lead to divorce, I'll tell you. And don't seek to be married to get something. Don't say, well, I want to get married because I want this, that, and the other. You're starting off the wrong foot right there. You don't get married to somebody to get something out of them. That's not what the marriage vow is all about. You want to seek to understand what the vows are all about and what the commitment God expects you to have. You need to understand these things. The world is definitely not going to teach you these values. You're only going to learn about them in the Word of God. So we have to learn to respect the sanctity of marriage, the place for it in the church, and even in the world. We're going to influence the world through the kind of marriages that we have since strong marriages become strong foundations for a strong church. God is the judge, it says in Hebrews 13, 4, of the adulterer and the sexually immoral. There are certain things that the church will judge, like those who are serial adulterers 
or serial sexual offenders. Yeah, the church has, give, has been given the right to judge and disfellowship such people. Uh, but each case, each case is unique and we have to examine them. So we should encourage strong marriages. That's what we need to do. Encourage very, very strong marriages in the church. How do we do that? Well, we encourage strong marriages by teaching godly sexual education to the young people. Teach our young people what God expects of a sexual union and what is that all about. And an excellent book to begin the sexual education is in the Song of Solomon. I may even teach a class on it. I've taught a class to some of our young people uh, in years past. And it's an excellent way to get the godly sex education that we need. We also need to hold accountable those who are courting and teach them how to court, how to date responsibly without inflaming their passions, but in a holy and honorable way and have pre-marriage counseling, which is something that I've been doing again for over 25 years. I've been giving pre-marriage counseling to our couples. We have many in our body here who are qualified marriage seminar instructors and can teach, give excellent seminars and classes to, to, to build strong marriages amongst each other's. And so by doing these things, church when churches have programs like these, they prevent marriages from deteriorating and they help troubled marriages gain some hope. It's very important to do that because if there are too many late marriage counseling sessions taking place, like you, like you call me up and say, Pedro, we're about to get divorced. Please help us. Why are you calling me so late? You know, call me a little earlier, please. <laughs> Don't wait so long, you know, uh, because your heart is going to get hard. We don't want that to happen. Okay, and if you're thinking about dating somebody, talk to someone who's mature so that you don't get all caught up in your passions and end up marrying an unbeliever. That's not a good thing or end up marrying somebody that's not good for you because you were too busy or too proud to seek some pre-marriage counseling to see whether or not you were compatible to someone. Don't start out that way. You know, be wise. Okay. That's part of your responsibility to honor marriage. You're responsible, too, to honor marriage by doing it the right way, okay? And we have many opportunities to make sure we do it the right way. And if somebody goes through trouble, and if somebody goes through a divorce, well, as a church, we give them our support. We encourage them, we encourage them as they go through these difficult scenarios. So we have finished the class. We're done. We're done with marriage, divorce, and remarriage. However, we're not done with the topic. I think I may take one more class, one or two more classes, depending on how it goes, on answering some common objections, okay? Uh, so I did answer some common objections throughout the lessons that some of you may have heard, like, what about living in adultery? Or, or is there a requirement for celibacy? Uh, but I have some more here. Some of them have come because you've asked me some questions. 
And I was like, oh yeah, that's a good one. Let me add it here to the common objections. And so in the next few classes, what I will do is go through some answers to common objections that people may have on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But as far as tonight's class is concerned, we're done with the main topics. So I got three questions for your discussion tonight. How can Jesus' words be misinterpreted if we don't understand the Greek aorist tense in the passages discussed? So here you get a chance to repeat and remember this very all-important Greek aorist tense, the punctiliar action, so that we can learn how to correctly interpret these passages where Jesus speaks about divorce and remarriage. Question number two, what are the implications of understanding the conjunction and in Matthew 19.9 and related passages? Oh, very important, right? Without understanding that conjunction, we jump to conclusions and we call adultery things that Jesus didn't call adultery. And we got to be careful with that, okay? And question number three, Let's discuss the ways that a church can honor marriage. I already gave you a list, so I started you off. Maybe you can think of some other things or just uh, repeat the ones that I said. Right, so uh, I'll leave the questions up here so you can take a picture of them while Danny or Victor or someone transports us through our breakout rooms. Have a good night, guys. Thank you for your attention. God bless you. Thank you very much for listening. I hope the Lord gave you insight into conforming to Jesus with today's message. I always appreciate feedback. You can send me your thoughts, musings, and comments directly through the Anchor app. You can also contact me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing.